This Kendra is where they make their mark. This is the time where you've got to turn the table. You've got to take advantage and ride this wave in this momentum. Look out! Very warm welcome to the Match Preview Podcast. Callum Williams, as always, alongside Kindra D. St. Aubin. Lots coming up throughout the show. In the second segment, we'll be joined by assistant manager of Minnesota United and former assistant manager of Portland Timbers, Sean McCauley, who can tell us all about the forthcoming opponent for the Loons, Portland Timbers, on Saturday evening at Allianz Field. First and foremost, though, Kendra D. St. Aubin. Minnesota United back to winning ways against Seattle Sounders, the first team to beat Brian Schmetzer's men this season. Your thoughts on the victory and how they were able to do it? Well, first of all, I, I think you kind of felt like at some point we all know streaks are going to end. So I don't think Brian Schmetzer was, you know, going into this match thinking that his team was going to go unbeaten um, the entire MLS season. Quite the run that they had, you know, credit to them and what he was able to do with that group based on the roster and the injuries and the change in formation and even just the pressure of coming in to the season with that kind of a start. But I thought ultimately what it was, it was it was kind of a, a battle of will for Minnesota United. They didn't – it wasn't the prettiest game of football. It wasn't the most – um, exciting match to watch or to call, as I'm sure you can appreciate. Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately all that matters is they got the win and they got the three points. And for Minnesota United, that's all you can ask for, especially at home in front of standing room only crowd. They found a way to get the job done. And it was late and they didn't create a lot of opportunities and a lot of dangerous chances, but they got the win and that's all that matters. And yeah, it snapped their unbeaten streak. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm sure Schmetzer is probably okay with it because now they can just sort of hit the reset button and they don't have to answer any more questions about an unbeaten streak. One person who I thought was simply flawless was Bakai Gibassi because we came into that particular game, Kay, talking on, on this podcast and various other platforms about how dangerous Raul Rui Diaz has been this season. Prior to the game, it was 10 goals in 13 appearances for Seattle Sounders, hardly mentioned him at all during our commentary. I don't know what yourself uh, and your commentator did on, on the ESPN broadcast, but I, I don't remember mentioning Rui Diaz hardly at all. No, you're absolutely right. I thought he was fabulous, um, Debassi. And I do think that, you know, you got to give him even more credit, not just for shutting down a player like Rui Diaz, but knowing that he's doing it alongside Brent Coleman and you also have DJ Taylor on the back line. And that's not to take anything away from those two as professionals, but just knowing that those are not the two regular starters that you would have alongside of you. If you're Baki Devasi, if you, you've got Brent Coleman, who now you've played some time with, you're getting kind of the, the chemistry and the flow and the who's going to step when, who's going to cover, you know, what everybody's strengths and weaknesses are. You have DJ Taylor, also trying to read and, and feed off of that and, and figure out what he's capable of. And so the fact that Debassi was able to do it also with a different back line than what he's used to or what we've come accustomed to, I think you have to give him even more credit um, that Rui Diaz was pretty much non-existent in this match. And I think why that's important is because even – regardless of who Rui Diaz has had alongside him or behind him, whether it's Freddie Montero or others, 
he's still found a way to be dangerous over the last 13 matches prior. He still found a way to be tied for the leading goal scorer in MLS. And I think coming into the match and what, what she still does have going into this podcast, 24 goals since he joined um, Seattle Sounders, you know, in all competitions. So this is a guy that just finds a way, finds a way to score goals regardless of the situation. And, um, Debasi was fantastic in that game and a huge reason why Rui Diaz was non-existent. One individual that is quite rightly so earning a lot of praise has been DJ Taylor. Obviously, Juan Manet has been unavailable. He's been in France awaiting some paperwork. To our knowledge, uh, he should be available for the game against Portland Timbers, but we'll wait and see how he does in training. Maybe Adrian Heath wants to continue with DJ Taylor. And you wouldn't blame him, really, because he has been in fine fettle. Um, not to, to play devil's advocate, although I, I guess I will slightly here, DJ Taylor's gone up against Austin Trusty of Colorado, who is not a left-back. He's also gone up against a team playing wing-backs. I wonder if he does get the nods this coming weekend against the Timbers. How will fare going up against a flat-back four? Um, one would assume, Kay, that what seems to be an upward rising trajectory would continue to get even higher. He's been wonderful, hasn't he? Well, he has. And I think the thing that I was most pleasantly surprised with is that he has continued to push on and push forward as much as or close to as much as we've seen Roma Metzenier in the past, right? That is always a huge threat for Chase Gasper and, and Metzenier to be able to push on and be a two-way threat for Minnesota United and be that threat going forward and be that outlet for the back line. And DJ Taylor, I was kind of thinking, mm, maybe he's going to stay home a little bit more. Maybe he's going to focus on defense first. Maybe he doesn't have the, the um, game fitness, the match fitness to be able to go both ways for 90 plus minutes when asked, but he's proven me wrong in that aspect that he's continued to push on. He served some really nice balls in to get those overlapping runs. I saw it again today at training, his ability and, and willingness to get forward and then also somehow get back into position defensively. So for me, this is an, another one of those times where you're like, this is a great problem for Adrian Heath to have. Is it, is it a tough one if, if Metzenier is able to go to pick your selection and pick your 11, but all you can ever ask for is depth in your roster. And I think DJ Taylor has done just that. Um, it's only a couple games, so we'll see if he continues to, to ride high and fly high. But let's take a, a look at the schedule that's upcoming. You've got Portland on Saturday. You've got LAFC. Then you're on the road at Salt Lake against Vancouver. Like these games, there is no break from here on out. So there are going to be pieces that are moving and shuffling. And I think the beauty of regardless of who they're going back against or what formation the opposition might be playing or how their back line shapes up, whether it's wing backs, or it's a flat back, how they look in the middle of the field, where Minnesota United can be dangerous, knowing that you have options in that outside back position, and some depth there, you know, and you're not having to stick Hassani there. Mm. Right. And take him out of position centrally and, and slide him into the right back. Like we saw the, you know, the first couple of seasons, Sasani was on the team. So this is a good thing for Adrian Heath to be able to look at his squad, look at who they're facing up against, who is the matchup down that side and see what he thinks suits him best. Is it DJ Taylor? Is it Roma Metzenier? Is it changing shape? Is it, you know, moving a lot of pieces around? These are good problems to have. I don't know what you said prior to the game, Kay, but I remember thinking to myself, one of the key components of the game was going to be Minnesota pressing the, the high uh, wingbacks of Seattle Sounders. 
um, which is difficult to do when you're playing inverted wingers, but one area where they were successful was when DJ Taylor was able to overlap and find some space. But it was so obvious then when Nico Hansen came in, providing such a different mindset, a very different problem for Seattle Sounders to deal with. And straight away, he caused problems and obviously in the end ended up setting up the winning goal. And don't you think that's sort of the conundrum, Cal, that that Adrian, you could view it as a conundrum or you could view it as a, as a positive, that he's going to have to, it very much so changes the way they play depending on who he has in those positions. We talk about the inverted wingers. And even in the second half, Reynoso found himself drifting out wide quite a bit before those substitutions were made. I think trying to find the space, trying to find the game, trying to find places to receive the ball where he wasn't in so much traffic. And this to your point from the prior game about the team being maybe just a bit too narrow when you have so many options and people tucking in and trying to create and get on the ball you're dragging all those defenders in. So Nico Hansen, Ethan Finley, same kind of player, different dynamic to the game when you have wingers that are like that, as opposed to Franco Frangapane and Robin Lud, who are cutting inside and trying to get involved with Reynoso. And I thought Adrian Anu for the second game in a row now was struggling a little bit to find the spaces and the pockets of where he could be effective and combine and, and create. And you saw a few times where uh, it looked like there was supposed to be a skip pass. Maybe Reynoso was trying to go through Hassani Dotson to Fragapane behind him, but Hassani Dotson's in that pathway and there was no communication or no you know, fluidity with that. And Hassani Dotson would stop the ball, but it was supposed to be a skip pass or a dummy to the next runner. So, you know, when, when it's too crowded in there, it can be a problem. Then Nico Hansen, Ethan Finley, different players um, can create problems like Nico did right away. So, I don't know. Do you view that as a, a, a conundrum for Adrian Heath or do you view that as a positive that he can really change the way this team looks depending on how the game is presenting itself? I think it gives Adrian Heath options for sure uh, because there are obviously teams in this league that do play different ways and there are different ways of getting the better of those teams. Um, I understand why Minnesota play the way they do with the inverted wingers, particularly with the overlapping fullbacks as well because those inverted wingers who obviously start higher up the field the hope is that they will pull the opposing fullbacks inside, meaning obviously the um, overlapping fullbacks of Minnesota can can have more space in the wide areas and they can deliver the cross and, and such and such. Um, but I do think at times, yeah, it, it, it's good for, for Adrian Heath to have options off the bench like Ethan Finlay and, and the, particularly Nico Hansen, who, who has been nothing more than impressive since he's come in from uh, Houston Dynamo because they are just different players. And it's so good for, for Minnesota to have all these options. And Adrian Heath, by the way, I, I think we have to give full credit for recognising that situation and, and bringing on Nico Hansen and understanding the damage that he could cause for Seattle Sounders. Um, and I think this is something we're going to see moving forward. And, and, and depending on the opponent that Minnesota have come up against, sometimes we may very well see Nico Hansen starting um, because they think it's best to, to press the opposing fullback. So the... The overriding thought here for Mike is that it's just wonderful that Minnesota United have all these options. And, and I think, you know, you, you're always going to have players that are identified as, as regular first-team players, um, people that will be identified as starting 11 players. But, but, but sometimes you have to change. Sometimes you, 
You have to go with individuals who you think are better suited to a certain situation. And I think Adrian Heath recognised that with about, what was it, 15, 20 minutes to go when, when Hansen came on. Um, and obviously, I think Madranda had shifted over to, to the left wing-back role in for the Sounders. Um, and because of their limitations, it was, it was really one of the, the very few options that they had to push forward was from the wide area. So, so that meant then that there was an opportunity for Minnesota to get in behind. And that's when Adrian Heath changed it and said, right, we need to get some pace in behind and threaten from the wide areas again. And um, I, I thought it was great. I thought it was exactly what Minnesota needed. Uh, and Nico Hansen did the business. And then Robin Lord, look, um, obviously can play a multitude of roles um, and certainly doesn't make a mistake um, when he's given the service as well. Let's be honest, though. I think you or I could have put that one away. It was as, about as, as simplistic of a finish as they come. But fair play to him for being in the position and dragging himself away from the centre half in the first place. Exactly. And that's all. That, I mean, honestly, that's what you're supposed to do as an attacking player, as in a forward, is to be in the right, put yourself in the right position to finish those tap in or not. I mean, you've seen plenty of goal scorers in your lifetime that make a living off those easy tap ins, but it's about the run and the movement that leads up to it. The tap in and this finish and just putting the, you know, the inside of your boot on it when you're four feet in front of goal, where it's harder to miss than it is to make is just the final part of the product it's the runs and the movement and the recognizing things off the ball to, that lead to that moment to put yourself in a position to make it an easy tap in and not make it something more difficult or make something where it's just nearly there we've seen that on the back post where the the run is just nearly there and the ball goes trickling out the other side so and back to your point too about the versatility of the wingers and the outside backs and the options that adrian has going forward and making the right decisions at the right time to make adjustments depending on the opposition i just have to go back to again to the point that just the, the amount of games that are going to be coming up and the health of players and the depth of players and just having that really solid rotation that you can put in and not miss a beat. You'll change the look a little bit. You might change. You won't change the shape. It'll change the look a little bit. Um, I think that says a lot about this group and what Adrian Heath can do going forward in this stretch of games for the rest of the season. Before we talk about Portland Timbers, the upcoming opponents for Minnesota this forthcoming Saturday, Bit of an incident at Atlanta United over the course of the weekend. We're going to talk a little more in depth about this on our Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Minnesota pregame show on the television side of things on Saturday. So make sure you join us for that. But Gabriel Einzer, the head coach that was at Atlanta United, let go. Um, it seems as though Atlanta United are an almighty mess at the moment, Kay. You know... I mean, I, I joked on the broadcast um, on Sunday because we were it came it came out the news came out in the yes. middle of the game about you know who's going to even be the interim at the, at the moment and I don't even know who it is now but that was a conversation and I said well maybe Bocanegra should do it uh -huh. and you know my broadcast partner was like I'm not touching that with a ten foot pole but you know sometimes <laughs> it's kind of like it's 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 easier when you're higher up in the food chain in the management positions because you can make the decision even though you made the decision to bring in that head coach you're not the one that's getting fired but you don't really understand how difficult it is maybe to be a manager or a head coach until you've been it and understand what goes along with it so this clearly again seems like it wasn't the right fit from the beginning and that is what maybe a better fit than prior right but still not the right fit and i you just have to wonder what 
are the conversations going when they're making these decisions, when they're making these coaching hires? Are they trying to too hard? Are they being trying to be too flashy because you're Atlanta United, because you've had the success you've had? I mean, do you just have to go back to the drawing board and and be more simple with your decisions and your choices on who you might be selecting for the next head coach. But clearly it wasn't working there. They had two wins. You could have said there was some hangover from the prior season or from CCL or whatever, but then as this continued on and and the team just didn't look good, didn't look like they were on the same page. And then, you know, similar when Frank DeBoer was the manager and then all of a sudden we're hearing Joseph Martinez isn't in the mix and he's not training with the team and you mixed signals coming out and they did not waste any time after that last match, just cutting their losses and, and just, you know, I, you'd like to say give them credit for realizing in this moment and not hesitating to make that change. But at the same time, they made the decision in the first place. So it's hard to give them credit for firing him too. I mean, I don't know. What do you make of it? You might have, you probably have more sources on the inside telling you what the heck is going on there. Well, um, sort of, and I've got to be careful what I say here because a lot of this is sort of reported, uh, reports have come out through various different journalists, haven't they, about, you know, um, different uh, situations that the players weren't happy with. And ultimately, it looks like there was some sort of falling out between Gabriel Einzer and Joseph Martinez and, and the, not only the playing staff, but some of the, the staff behind the scenes and the front office seem to have, um, seem to have, agreed with Joseph Martinez and sided with him, ultimately leading to the decision to be rid of, of Gabriel Einzer. Uh, as I said, look, we'll talk about this a lot more in our pregame show on the television side uh, on Saturday evening. Um, by the way, the um, interim manager of Atlanta United at the moment, an individual called Rob Valentino, who worked mm. under Adrian Heath at Orlando City, mm when they were in USL, and I've only heard very good things about him. But I'll also say this again. I think I might have said this on, on this very podcast last week whilst we were talking about the issues at Toronto. This, this is now two very, very big clubs in, in the MLS realm um, who have not been shy of spending money. For me, the obvious answer, you have to go and ask the question, at the very least, you have to go and ask the question to River Plate about Marcelo Gagliardo and, and see if you can get him in uh, because I think that that makes too much sense, in my opinion. But we'll wait and see. Uh, Atlanta United now looking for their fourth manager in five years in Major League Soccer. OK, so next up, Portland Timbers then for Minnesota United on Saturday evening. This has been an interesting season for the Timbers so far, Kay. I don't think they've been as consistent as many had expected them to be, as, as many thought they would be. Um, we have to, again, reiterate that we're recording this on uh, Wednesday afternoon, the Timbers in action this evening against LAFC. Um, what's your overriding thoughts at the moment of Giovanni Savarese's men? What have they done right? What have they done not so right so far? You know, I think the biggest thing for me is just the inconsistency. We, this this kind of reminds me of the Savarese team that we saw when he first took over and there's a certain level of expectation with the Portland Timbers success and with the roster that they had and some of the star quality and they have in Valeri and Obobese was sort of starting to come on the scene and you have you know you've had other players that Chara clearly we've talked about several times but they've always had this kind of core group and in the beginning of when Savarese took over I people didn't I, I didn't know what their identity was I didn't know how they wanted to play I didn't know 
what, and I think even the players were a little unclear of what he, they were being asked to do in, in different roles and, and on the field. Then they kind of seemed to figure it out and they sort of leveled off in a positive way, not leveled off like in a negative way, but they sort of seemed to kind of find their form and their, and their philosophy and their shape and how, what he expected of them. And, and now I feel like they're kind of back to that beginning part where you're not really sure what you're going to get every night from that team. And we all know the best franchises in any sport really players and in, in, is when you find consistency when you're consistent and you can find a, a good solid form and that doesn't mean you're winning every night but at least you know when you go out there what you're going to get how you want to play and you can push the right buttons as, as a manager to change things if needed throughout a game throughout a match with an individual um, make adjustments they've had a lot of injuries so to be fair they've they've had a lot of ups and downs with that um, I, that's kind of what I make of this team. And now again, it's the Western conference, it's MLS. So it's a crapshoot to me on a night. Would I have thought that Minnesota United would go on the road to Portland score in like the second minute of the game and then hang on to that lead at that place. And, and with a one, nothing, the rest of the match, I would have absolutely said to you anytime in the past, no. And even going into that game, I would have said that one goal would not have been enough to walk mm-hmm. away with the win. But I think that, you know, that's kind of credit to some Tyler Miller saves and some, you know, bad misses by Portland, but nonetheless, they come away with the three points. And I think those kind of losses can really set you back as a club. If you don't have the right group and manager to kind of pull you back out of it. And that's kind of what I'm seeing from this team right now. And again, they've had some absences, had guys gone for different tournaments. What will they look like when they're back in full health and full roster We'll see, but this this absolutely should be three points for Minnesota United, without a doubt, in my mind. I think on any other evening at Providence Park, Minnesota yes. probably would have claimed two or three goals had it not have been for some spectacular goalkeeping from Steve Clark. Um, you mentioned it there, Kay, the fact that this coming game, it'll be a different look, Portland Timbers. There's one or two that are on international duty at the Olympics and the Gold Cup but they've also got a handful returning from Copper America as well. With that in mind, what can Minnesota United take from that victory at Providence Park into this game at Allianz Field? Well, I think, you know, and and again, we're recording this on Wednesday and they play against LAFC tonight. It's a home game for them, but even still. So who knows what the roster and and what team he'll throw out there uh, on Saturday night. It's hard to say, but if we're just purely talking, you know, based on last game and this game, I think what it should be about for Minnesota is just that you are focusing on what you need to do to get your job done. And I don't say that with every opponent that Minnesota plays. There are oftentimes players that I think um, have to be a little more keyed in on, but not knowing what roster they're going to throw out, not knowing who's healthy and available for Portland. I think ideally what Adrian Heath has to focus on is his group, getting his group ready to mentally play. They did not play their best game in the last one against Seattle, but they came away with a win. You're at home once again, before you go and play two very difficult road games, you have to focus on the the task at hand and what you need to do in your shape to find your form, especially from an attacking perspective and get back on track. If you're Minnesota United, because you, you can't game plan for Portland right now, unless they have some secret intuition and, and thought on what, Gio Savarisi can throw out there on Saturday. I really do think that Adrian's going to have to focus on what they can do to get 
to the goalkeeper. I'm assuming it's going to be Clark, but I guess we don't even know that for sure. And finish some of their opportunities that they, you know, be a little bit better in that final third and focus on what they need to do because, you know, if the other team doesn't have the ball, they can't win the game and you need to score some goals because it hasn't looked pretty from an attacking perspective the last two games. They just happen to come away with a, with a win against Seattle. Okay, we'll start wrapping things up in this opening segment here. Remember, Sean McCauley coming up after the break. Um, Emmanuel Reynoso for Minnesota United this season, Kate. What have you made of him? Has, has he done enough? Has he been impressive? Has he not impressed? What have you made of him thus far? I don't think he's done enough. Um, he's gotten the secondary assist on a few occasions, you know, which we reference a lot with, with hockey around here in the great state of Minnesota. Um, I think some of it is to do with how teams are finding a way to thwart what he's trying to create. Um, I think there's been a few occasions where he's tried to do too much mm. because of the pressure and, and just because of the wanting to be, the guy that makes things go and just knowing his ability. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think if you asked him, he would say it's an underwhelming season so far. And I'm not saying he just needs to show up on the stat sheet by any means. Mm -hmm. he, I'm not one of those people that's like, well, if he doesn't have the goals and the assists, then he's not doing his job. I do think though, just from a watching him perspective and seeing normally what he can create, that I, I haven't, it's not been good enough for me. And I think he would tell you the same thing. And um, I'm just trying to figure out how much is that is what the opposition is doing. How much is that is just Reynoso maybe trying to do too much. And there's been a few times, let's be fair, like where he's gotten the crap hacked out of him. <laughs> I mean, his ankles, his calves and his Achilles. I don't know how much he's icing those down after every game, but it, it seems like there might, you know, need to be a few more whistles that go in his favor because there's been some teams that have gotten away with quite a bit, in my opinion, of when he's on the ball and trying to create. So I don't know. I mean, it's it's early. There's a lot of season left. He may catch fire. But what we were he set a pretty high standard with how we ended 2020. And um, so we're just waiting for that to come back. And he's got the playmakers and the quality around him to be able to do it. And maybe he needs to realize that he doesn't have to do all the heavy lifting knowing those that are around him, you know, and he can, he doesn't have to be right to the ball every time he can sit back and find the. He doesn't, I know he always wants the ball, but there are times I think where he can let somebody else get the ball and then they find him. And then he starts the opportunity, you know, because then he'll have some more space to do some things that he wants to do with. I completely agree with you in the sense that I'm also a believer of just because from a statistical and numerical points of view, the numbers aren't necessarily as high as many thought doesn't mean he's not doing his job. Some of the, the things he does off the ball are sensational mm -hmm. when he drags whoever's playing there, the sixth role for yes. the opposition. It, it's wonderful, but that's never going to show up on the stat sheets. The, the one thing which I have noticed though, okay, is, is he is picking up the ball a lot deeper this season mm -hmm. than he, than he was in the past. And I think there's, there's various different reasons for that. I mean, one of the arguments I, I heard the other day, which which I could see, is obviously with the, the inverted wingers pinching in, and that perhaps does force him back a little bit. Um, and and he looks for space. I think I, I think you might have made that point uh, a little while ago, and and I, I can certainly see that for sure. But against Seattle Sounders, he gave the ball away thirty five times, wow. which which <laughs> you don't mind you don't mind a number ten giving the ball away that amount if they're higher up the field. I was but just going to say. 
losing the ball inside your own half that many times. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is problematic for Minnesota, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I, I think I said that on more than one occasion on the broadcast is you cannot turn the ball over right there. First of all, you don't want him receiving the ball that deep, but then if he is receiving the ball, you cannot have him turning it over. And I think we got used to seeing too in the past where he would get the ball maybe a little bit deeper, but he'd give it and get it back farther up the field. I think sometimes when he's receiving the ball so deep, he's trying to do too much so far away from goal that that it's just it, it falls apart before it becomes anything from an attacking perspective. And that's why I was saying maybe he doesn't have to be the one going to the ball on the first pass out when they win possession. He can be the second pass in the attack. Somebody else, Hassani Dotson, can receive it or find it. Or maybe it goes out to the wing and then it finds him centrally, you know, in, in a combination play, but he's farther up the pitch between midfield and the 18 and the attacking third of the field. Then he can slot somebody through. Then he can be more dangerous in creating those opportunities. But you cannot have the giveaways in, in, the, in dangerous areas. And really, to be fair, that many giveaways at any point um, on the field when you're a player of that quality. You just wonder if he's trying to do a little too much, a few too many touches. And we need him farther up the field so he can be more dangerous and fresher when he does get the ball and, and he can help create. Back farther, he's, you know, he's getting hacked. He's losing possession. He's getting, you know, I mean, it feels like knock on wood, it's going to be a matter of time before he suffers some kind of injury. We've already seen him had to step off a few times because of the contact that he's receiving. I agree with you hundred percent. And maybe the, the inverted wingers have to read it a little bit. They can't both pinch every time. Maybe they have to read it a little bit. We love the, you know, the backs overlapping and finding that space, but maybe they have to pick and choose those moments on who is doing what and pinching in because you just can't have everybody converging in that same space. Too many bodies from an attacking perspective. And then you're all dragging your defenders in there, which is great if you're getting the ball out to the wing and they whip it in. But if you're trying to actually attack through that part of the field, it's just too many, too much. Yeah, I I agree. Well, We'll wait and see. He's still first class. He's still absolutely wonderful. Minnesota's yes, right anywhere absolutely. near as they're nowhere near as sharp from an attacking point of view when he's not on the field. So he's still first class. But uh, interesting to see. I think it's a big game for him on Saturday against Portland. Right. We'll take a break. Next up, the assistant manager of Minnesota United, Sean McCauley, joins us to preview the game on Saturday. Minnesota United fans, download the Great Clips app to keep your hair game ready all year long. Great Clips, it's gonna be great. And a very warm welcome back to the Match Preview Podcast. Callum Williams alongside Kindred D. St. Aubin. Minnesota United up against Portland Timbers this forthcoming weekend. Joining us on the pod now... He was a assistant coach when Portland Timbers perhaps had their most historic and iconic moments, winning MLS Cup in 2015. Now he's one of our own. Dare I say, this forthcoming weekend game should be christened the Sean McCauley Derby. Sean, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm not sure we should call it that, but yeah, I'm happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we'll see. There's several people that think it should be. So we'll we'll perhaps have that conversation again another day, shall we? Um, look, it, it's obviously been a good spell for Minnesota United, just one defeat in the last nine games. What do you put that recent stint of success down to? I think we've we've um 
we approached every game, even the first four games that we, we got beaten, we we approached them with the same mentality, the same attitude to go out and win the game, you know, and unfortunately during that first four, we couldn't really get a, a break. Uh, and then I would say the next, you know, session that we've had where we've had really good form and you're looking at probably two points per game over the next, which is championship winning form. Uh, we've, I think we've defended really well, kept a really good shape of the team, uh, been very compact and been difficult to beat. And then once you're difficult to beat, you always give yourself a chance to win. You went right there to the defense right away. If, if you had to say as a coach, what, what, what do you bring to the table? What is your quality that you bring to a club, whether in any level of, of experience that you've had when you talk about, you went to the defense right away, but I'm just kind of curious, what do you think it is that you bring to a club from a, a coaching perspective? I just think my job is to probably support the manager as, as much as he can in any area he wants to, any area he needs. and. Um, you know, I think that that's where you're good assistant coaches and probably, you know, you probably need to go a little bit more unnoticed and uh, and just do the work that the manager wants you to do. Sean, I know you've had personal success against Seattle Sanders before, being the Portland Timbers assistant manager. I'm sure it meant quite a lot when you were with the Timbers, but how much did it mean to you and the rest of the staff to finally get one over the Sounders with Minnesota United? I think that's the... That's the the, the thing because because of the you know getting that win against them you know as a as a good benchmark because of where where they've done been in the last sort of five years ten years even when they when they joined the league um, they're a really successful team and they're a really good team so getting a, a win against them is really really satisfying but it also came on the back of, of probably our poorest performance of the season which is which is what we had the week before the game before so to bounce back was was really good for for the group, um, and it was really important to, to to win, obviously, against a really good team, but it was more concentrating ourselves, making sure that we had a reaction from the, the really poor performance in the, in the game previous. You've been in sports a long time as a coach and a player. Is there anything that you've learned along the way where you can put your finger on why a performance like Colorado happens, or is it just an off night, or anything that you've learned from your experiences? Um, the one thing that I got told really early was, Whenever you go into game, the other team wants to win as well, <laughs> and sometimes that makes a bit bit of a difference. <laughs> so you can't walk into the game thinking that everything's going to be your own way. And I think you know that's probably where we were at because we're on a really good run of form, um, and we just didn't turn up for the game. Um, which you know credit to to Adrian, he told the players in no uncertain terms what he felt. And the players responded fantastically and we ended up getting a really good performance uh, and the win at the weekend to get us on a, hopefully a new run. Sean, what did we think the major difference was to that game on Sunday? What were the little intricacies that perhaps those of us that aren't in the game don't see? What were the main differences to get the better of the Sounders? Um, I think we, because we, we started really well, um, but we, we never really sort of, you know, had clear-cut chances. Um, but we started the, the, the game really well, so that gave us confidence to, to you know, to grow into the game. Uh, and then in the second half, we probably had our, our worst period of play to start the second half. But then obviously got hold of the game again and made a couple of changes, you know, with a with the lineup. And then that freshness brought about a little bit more enthusiasm. Um, I think Adrian being on the side of the field, what happened? 
also brought uh, energy to the to the crowd and, and everything got going for us. And we, you know, I think deservedly won, won the game, even though credit to Seattle, because they did come out in second half and, and gave us a tougher time as what they, than what they did in the first. When you look at a little bit of life and, and some substitutions and some changes, I know it wasn't a sub, it was a starter, but can you talk a little bit about G.J. Taylor and what he's brought the last couple of matches and having to fill in for someone like Roma Metzenaire, who is nearly impossible to to replace to fill in for? Yeah, I mean, the the what we see is what is what we get with him and, and credit to him because the performance that he had against against Seattle in the last game was was fantastic. Uh, but that doesn't come from just, you know, the week leading up to it and, you know, you're involved with the team now. It comes from all the pre-season work. Because if you remember, he started the season in all our pre-season friendlies as, you know, because because Ramin was away. So um, he just waited out and, and showed a great attitude, fantastic attitude in training and, and waited for his chance. And if you can do that, then obviously taking your chances is, is really important. And I, I think he did really well for the team. Just one or two more, Sean, before we move on to Portland Timbers. I personally thought Bakai Dibasi probably had his best game that he's had for Minnesota United against the Sounders. You, you coaching staff, uh, you must be delighted with what you saw with him on Sunday. Yeah, he was he was immense. Um, really calming influence. Um, excellent on on the ball in possession. It's amazing because we get a lot of you know statistical anal- analytics and statistical data. Um, and apparently he ran, I think, 80% less than he has done his normal average game. Uh, people would put that down to him not, you know, having a good game, where we all think he's had a fantastic game. And the reason why he's not been able to, to match any sort of physical data is because he read the game tremendously well and basically gave arguably, you know, one of the best central centre forwards in the league, not even a, a, a chance in the game, not even a sniff in the game. I thought it was fantastic. And then on the other end, from an attacking perspective, what did you see from Minnesota United? How do you see that front four sort of kind of gel and find their chemistry? Robin Lloyd has only been back with that group for two games now with Fragapane in there and Unu and, and Reynoso essentially. How do you see that flow, that chemistry kind of coming about? I think it's it's always going to be, you know, something that needs to be, um, I can say not, not allowed to to develop because we we, we set a very organised, structured patterns of play. But I think with them four, the better they get, the more freedom to create will will come, not so much off the cuff, but reading each other. And I think, you know, the more they play together, the the more that you'll see the little combination play that, they, that we know that they're good at because we see it in training, will come out in the game. They just need to be a little more consistent in in that creativity. And, you know, we want the defensive structure of the team to be very organised and very strict. You know, there are there are one rule. Um, you have to work hard, work harder than your opponent. But when you get into that attacking third with them four, I think you, sometimes you have to just let them go and let them create whatever they see, which I think the goal, what Robin scored, is a little bit like that, you know. Nico picked the ball up. I know it's different personnel, but it's the same sort of philosophy. He picks the ball up, plays it to Ray. Ray plays a reverse pass. There's a lot of fluid movement, which probably never been practiced as a pattern of play. It's just that fluidity of, of movement that you want your forward players to have. 
Sean, let's move on to this weekend then, shall we? Portland Timbers, I know, are a club that's very close to your heart. You spent a long time there as a player and, as we mentioned, as an assistant manager as well, winning MLS Cup in 2015 and getting to various MLS Cup finals with a couple of different coaches. Um, what's the best way to describe Portland Timbers as a franchise? What are they? What's their identity? The, I mean, it's a fantastic uh club to be part of because they're very very active in the community and you know the uh they're very relevant in the in the local market like really relevant um so it, it it's almost like a, a little bit like of a european feel to it when you know the club's supporters are probably very very passionate about that one club because they don't really have another you know sporting outlet and other blazers are, are there and you know they have, you know, the, the universities are there with the football programs and, and the the women's football team at, at University of Portland is fantastic. And, and that has a lot of support, but the Timbers really dominate, you know, an area of, of, of uh, the club, which makes you feel part of something big. And I would sort of correlate that a little bit like Minnesota. I don't know Minnesota's got all the sports, but you can see that the, the ones that, the supporters that turn up and watch us play, it's very similar. It's, you know, it's all in for that 90 minutes for that, for that, for that crest and that, that club. When you look at the Portland Timbers roster um, from the time that you were there to the current situation and the current group that they have there, one of the, the mainstays is Chara, is Diego Chara. What do you make of him as a player and his ability and, and what he brings to the game? Yeah, he's, He's fantastic. He's a really good player. Um, proven over over the years to be to be very dominant for for Portland. Uh, I'm not sure if it still holds up, but I think when we were there, that if he wasn't in the team, there was a real high percentage that we would lose the game because when he played, he had a, an unbelievable statistic where it was every time he plays, we seem to we seem to win. So he's a a really important integral cog in that wheel because he, he provides so much for the the rest of the players, uh, you know, because he does a lot of work that goes unnoticed and, um, you know, he's, he's a really important player for them. Let me ask you, Sean, obviously Minnesota had success the last time they played Portland Timbers. Anthony Antonou with the fastest goal in, in club history uh, in terms of when the team have gone into Major League Soccer anyway. I know there's going to be a different Portland Timbers team because one or two players will be off at the Olympics, one or two players will have returned from Copper America and various iterations of international football. So what sort of a challenge are you expecting on Saturday against Portland? I think, you know, similar to Seattle, you know, Portland are a team that, you know, can go and win any game in MLS. I would say we're very similar to that in terms of, you know, when we, we turn up to play, we, we have a chance of beating everybody. Um, and I think Portland are, are, are very similar that if they bring, you know, whatever 11 they put on the field, uh, I'm sure it'll be a really tough challenge for us and they'll provide us with a tough challenge. And we've just got to try and do the same things what we did against Seattle, which is have a good start and try and dominate them. And, and you know, it's a big three points for us because uh, they'll, they will be one of our rivals when we, when we talk about making the playoffs. Is there any particular person that you look at on this Portland Timbers team where you're like, okay, if we can lock this person down, then 
we stand a pretty good chance. I mean, no, you guys stand a good chance regardless, but you know what I mean? Like you, Ruby Diaz was kind of that guy for Seattle. Is there a person on the Portland Timbers that if you kind of take control, because Blanco, who knows what he's going to be, is Diego Valeri in the mix? There's, you know, there's a few options there for them. The the two you've mentioned, I mean, Jeremy scored a great goal at the weekend, but two you mentioned in terms of Sebi Blanco and, and Diego Valeri, because they can be score goals out of nothing, they're the, the two that really you would be, you know, trying to make sure that they have less and less impact on the game. But like I said, you could you could maybe look after them for 89 minutes and they do have that ability to to change a game with a with a touch or a pass or or they're very, very cool in around that final third when when it comes to finishing. So they'd be the two that you would probably be more dan- most dangerous um opponent when when we look at trying to nullify the opposition. We must rectify and, and, and help the audience understand as well that we are recording this on, on Wednesday afternoon. The Timbers are playing a game this evening against LAFC, so things may very well change. But one question I've always wanted to ask you, Sean, because you worked with him extensively, how good is Diego Valeri? I, I know he's in the twilight of his career now, been 35, but he's still so dangerous. I remember when he came into the league in 2013, I believe it was from Almeria in Spain, and he played in, in Argentina as well. How good is he and how good has he been over the years? I think it's um, the best way I can probably say it is, and it would be probably best advice that you would give to any younger player, uh, athlete or anybody that wants to be successful in, in any work. We recognise and we see how good he is on the field for that 90 minutes, but I, su- I suppose his strength really comes from the way he lives his life, you know, 24-7 and the way he trains. So that then allows us then to, to look at his qualities during that 90 minutes. But the qualities, I think, really come from uh, the way he lives his life and uh, the commitment and effort he puts into his training work. And like I said, that would be the advice that you would give to any younger player that, you know, you watch this kid play for a 90 minutes, but it's not the 90 minutes that really are the, are the key to, to him performing like that. It's, it's everything else he does. Well, you called him a kid right there, and, and Cal just said he's in the twilight a little bit of his career, and oftentimes he's coming off the bench. So as a star like he is, with his kind of ability, how important is it for a player like that to be able to accept that role and still contribute, regardless of what the coach is asking of you? Yeah, I mean, again, it shows you he's got a fantastic attitude. Um, you know, he'll want to come on and contribute, and that's one of them dangerous things, isn't it? But you know, if he's not playing, then you think, you know, he's going to come on the real fresh in 70, 70 minutes. You'd rather have him starting in the heat for 70 minutes than tiring off. So I, I, it's going to be a difficult uh, choice for them uh, because, like you said, but he's been coming to the twilight of his career for quite a few years now and he still seems to keep going. So I'm not really too sure when he's going to uh, turn his boots in, but um, he will contribute, I'm, I'm sure. Even when he retires, I think he'll still contribute to, to the Portland Timbers because he's, he's that well thought of. Sean, let's switch gears slightly and go back to Minnesota United for a moment or two. It seems, from our vantage point anyway at least, that Hassani Dotson and Will Sharp have become the first choice in the centre of midfield. How happy are you with their developments and how happy are you with, with what they've been able to provide so far? Yeah, they've, they've been great and um, they balance off each other really well. Um, you know, and, and I think irrespective of, of who plays with each other, there's always going to be that, you know, moment or a time frame where you have to 
understand somebody else's strengths and weaknesses, even though you're working with them, you know, all week. Um, but the good thing is they balance off each other really well. And, you know, you've seen all the best partnerships, you know, across all the leagues. Uh, you've got to understand each other's game. And I think that's probably the strength that, that you've got for them to, they both understand each other or the strengths and weaknesses and, and they allow each other to flourish within that, within that team setup. When Cal just mentions Hassani right there, and he's still, you know, relatively young from an MLS career, I know he made, you know, made it through college, so it makes him feel like a little bit older. But with a player like Hassani or a player like Chase Gasper, who maybe have some ups and downs and some learning, you know, growing pains along the way, how do you, how do you keep them confident? How do you keep them going on? Or maybe Hassani you know, not getting onto the Gold Cup roster or little things like that, maybe them not qualifying for the Olympics where it could be a mental, physical setback. How do you keep these guys sort of, you know, growing and, and getting through those down times or those tough times, even Dane St. Clair when he's in? I think that's the, the character of the individual. And I think it doesn't matter really how old you are. I mean, if you look in probably across in Europe when they start at a younger age, at 16, really, when they start full time, they'll be getting them set back 16, 17, 18. And in order to carry on at 19, 20, 21, 22, you probably have to get over them pretty quickly. And I would say that the the, the players that you've mentioned, the, the ones that you all drafted, who have, have really contributed to the first team, they've really contributed because any setback that they've had, they've probably had a little bit of downtime, had a bit of feeling sorry for themselves, and then they've, they've got on with it and, and got back on, on, on track. And that's credit to them. And, and it's something that, you know, you can put your arm around somebody, you can, you know, try and help them as much as you, as, as you can, but realistically, the individual's own character is going to get them through um, whatever setback they, they feel as though they're, they're having. Let, let's have this conversation then, Cheryl, because I'm interested to get your thoughts on this, Sean, being an Englishman as well. No doubt the collegiate system here has its benefits and often develops talents. The majority of the US national team have come through the collegiate system. But there is something to be said about it, though, when they don't turn pro until they are 21, 22, because then essentially they are playing catch-up with the rest of the world then. What what does this part of the world do to, to try and not only continue to develop as much as they can, but, but also catch up with the rest of the world in that, that regard? It's a difficult one because, like I said, historically the the college system produces players. Um, one of the best players I've ever worked with uh, came through college. He called Darlington Nagby. Um, I would say that the negative to it, and I'll go on and see whether you can solve it, but the negative to it, especially for Darlington, is he starts his career, his professional career at you know 22 year old. And then, like Kendra, you were saying, you get through them setbacks, and then you're 25, and then your asset value is lower than what it possibly should be. Because I do believe that if he was in a European club at 16, he'd have been playing football at 17, first-team football, at the very, very highest level, and he'd have had all his setbacks. And by the time he's 21, 22, 23, he's a multi-multi-millionaire <laughs> playing at the highest highest level. So that's that's the difficulty that the, the system has the benefit of that is the majority of people on like Darlington and the like the three lads we've got, Sarni, Dean and, and Chase. Um, so the majority of playing that system also then get a 
second chance at a, a top, top career in whatever education that they've gone through. Whereas in Europe, when you're 16, 17, and maybe even down in South America and, and, uh, and other countries around the world, when you've not got the collegiate system and you fall out of football, then generally your options are, are greatly reduced. In terms of how you can fix it, I think the academies now are, are trying to be a bit more uh, aggressive in, in the recruitment and development of talent and also using it as like uh, asset value. So, you know, their academies are trying now to recoup money on, on assets. You know, Brandon Harrison, when you've got, um, you know, Philly have sold a couple, you've got Dallas who have sold a couple, you've got KC with Busio, and, you know, you're looking at now them saying, well, you know, we'll invest the money and we'll treat them right from 16, 17, 18, sign them early with pro contracts, homegrown, and hopefully recoup some of the the outlay in, in, in terms of what, what development they've given them. Um, I don't think it's a, a one-size-fits-all. I think every club has its own way of doing things. Um, but, but definitely, you know, the college system has its place. Uh, and I think more and more with these players now being recruited for big money from, from academies, I think more and more clubs in the US will, you know, as the, the league changes its format as well in terms of reserve team league and MLS2 or whatever they call it, will it will, you know, force, you know, players to make a decision on whether they go to college or whether they go straight pro. Last one for me, Sean, is you've gotten to coach in two pretty incredible environments in Major League Soccer in Portland Timbers and Minnesota United with Allianz Field. How do they compare and how much does it have an effect on home field advantage when you have a crowd in an environment like you've seen in those two places? Yeah, I mean, they're both incredible, both the same. And, you know, I would say the, the best one is the one where you win the game. <laughs> it's, it's incredible to, to be at both of them, uh, but it's only incredible when you win. But when you lose, they're both the same as well. <laughs> so, so um, um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the things where it's great to be involved in such a progressive club that we've got here. Um, but it's even better when you win. Um, and that was the same at all the other clubs I've been at. You have a great week when you win. <laughs> it's not so good when you lose. <laughs> you wanna, I know you've obviously had coaching spells elsewhere, Sheffield Wednesday and Orlando City, to name a few. But let's concentrate on, on this weekend, shall we? The final question for me is, what was your best moment as a coach at Portland Timbers and what has been your best moment as a coach here at Minnesota United thus far? Well, best moments, obviously, at Portland was winning the MLS Cup. Um, and that was a fantastic weekend, fantastic, you know, after after we won it, we had a great time as well. So that was a was really good, good era. Uh, and here, um, I would say I was quite fortunate, people call it unfortunate, but quite fortunate that, um, in my first very early, you know, time at the club, I was forced into a, a bubble with people who I didn't know for 50 odd days. And I thought it was great. <laughs> I got to know everybody really, really well because <laughs> I couldn't speak to anybody else. So <laughs> I thought, I thought that, so the bubble and, and winning MLS Cup, they're two things that have, have really been good for me. Wonderful. Not, not what I thought you were going to say, but 
Either way, fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> appreciate it. Uh, Sean McCauley, Assistant Manager of Minnesota United. Thank you very much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, all eyes, of course, on Saturday evening. Minnesota United hosting Portland Timbers from all of us here. We'll see you at Allianz Fields. <laughs>